All right, what is up everybody out there in the podcast universe? I can't say just fellow Okies and Texans anymore, or even fellow Americans. It looks like I've had like a couple Canadians, some dude from Italy, a couple Swedes, a couple Norwegians even have tuned in at least once. That's kind of cool. I didn't really expect that only a month in, um, so it's really neat. The podcast is a very neat vehicle for reaching out into the universe to talk to people. Um, So, with the last episode, book two is all uploaded. The whole book two is out there now. Um, Book three is incoming, but like I've said a couple times before, I'm not quite ready to blast it out there yet. I want to make sure the whole story is there before I do that. And I think I'm there. I'm pretty sure I'm there. I'm very close if I'm not there. So if you're waiting on book three, you're not going to have to wait long. Book three is called The Book and the Light. Or The Light and the Book. I probably have to look again. It's The Light and the Book. I'm pretty sure. Anyways, until book three, um, I want to do a couple podcasts that aren't audiobooks. Uh, They'll... There'll be themes and ideas that I deal with in the book series, but presented in sort of an academic way instead of through the fiction like I did with Tyrants and Savages and American Dystopia. And in those, we talked about, if you didn't hear those, I suggest you go back and listen to them so this one makes a little more sense, but in Tyrants and Savages, we talked about how tyranny and savagery are the kind of two violent extremes of human civilization. And we talked about how common those were before the Enlightenment and the Age of Revolution. Then in American Dystopia, I talked about the idea of this kind of cultural rot that we're seeing in our nation, and not just our nation. I mean, I'm focused on America because that's where I live, but this cultural rot that seems to be taking place in all of Western civilization and how that could eventually lead to, and in my opinion, probably it will eventually lead to some sort of collapse of our, of the civilization as we know it. So now in this episode, before book three comes out, I want to talk about what I think is the, the biggest contributing factor to this cultural decline in the Western world. So, that's what I'm going to do today. Another thing I'm hoping is that my sound is a little bit better. I bought a new microphone and some headphones so I can hear myself as I'm speaking. Um, I'm hoping that that will improve the quality of the podcast. We're all figuring this out as we go. Um, You're getting to come along on this journey with me. Because I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of figuring it out as we go along. But this new microphone sounds better to me when I listen to the playbacks. And now I can hear myself in my head, which is odd. So, anyway, what we're going to talk about today. uh, I believe that the, the biggest contributing factor to this cultural decline in the West is an abandonment of foundational, fundamental, moral philosophies uh, that the cultures are built on. What forms those foundations of moral thought, though? 
and that's where if we're talking about the foundations of something you have to go to the very bottom of the well and find what is the thing or the idea on which these moral ideas are built on. So for our civilization, what is that first puzzle piece? The very first stone that was sort of laid. What is that? Well, it's the Bible. It is this belief in God. And whether or not you, I don't know, whether or not you like that, uh, that's the that's the truth of Western civilization, and it gets covered up a lot today, and we're going to talk about why in this podcast, but if you go back to the very foundations of all these European cultures that, you know, after the Age of Revolution, those cultures that form not only Europe, but then America, come over here and form this new country, the the very bottom of all of those is a is a belief in God, and specifically a Christian God, a Christian belief. And where do you get your Christian beliefs from? Well, of course, you get them from the Bible, the holy book of your religion. So I want to talk about God and the truth. Now, before you tune out, uh, I'm not going to talk about God for the sake of mission work here. I'm not trying to convince you to believe in God. I'm, I, I want to talk about God as a concept and the importance of God as an idea in our culture. Uh, that doesn't mean that I don't personally believe in God, because I imagine you expect that I do. Um, and the one thing I'm never going to do in my writing or on the podcast is try to hide my religious beliefs. And I feel like a lot of people do that, and I'm just... I'm not going to. And I'm not going to... not for Not for the sake of just being kind of like you know, out there, oh, look at me, I'm a Christian. I don't want to do that. I just don't want to hide it because I feel like a lot of people hide it in today's society because they think it is not politically correct to talk about. And I think those people are gigantic pussies. Um, so that's, that's where I'm coming from. I'm not going to do it. And I'd like to say that I'm never going to preach at you, but uh, maybe just a little, maybe just the right amount of preaching at you. So if the politics in Tyrants and Savages or American Dystopia didn't make people uncomfortable enough, this podcast probably will. Uh, we're going to swing for the fences of discomfort because nothing makes most people more uncomfortable than talking about God and religion. But again, it's, it's going to be, it's not going to be a strictly religious lecture. It's going to be a, a philosophical explanation of the idea of God and how that idea affects political philosophies, especially in Western societies and Western cultures. First off, I don't really think people understand how very important philosophy is. Philosophy is a, it's a very important thing. Your ideas, your culture, your worldview, your philosophy on existence and the world is going to inform everything in your life what you think, why you think that, your faith or your lack thereof, your concept of good and evil, your concept of right and wrong, your own view of yourself, what you are, uh, what your soul is. Philosophy is where people get their political ideas, their moral ideas, all that good stuff. And you can see, you can see this in the, in the writings of great authors. 
for example, you can tell that Shakespeare, for example, he writes from the perspective of a Christian, but nobody reads Shakespeare anymore, so that's probably a bad example, but uh, C.S. Lewis, um, J.R.R. Tolkien, you can tell through their writing that they are Christians. In fact, they're very upfront. Those two, especially Lewis and Tolkien, are very upfront about that fact, and that was the whole point of their most famous books in the first place. I think they... I, I need to read the history of this, but I, Lord of the Rings and The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe basically came from C.S. Lewis and Tolkien both talking about, hey, we're, let's each of us write a book that kind of displays Christian moral ideas. Or, I mean, in Tolkien's point of view, it would have been you know, Christian-Catholic uh, ideas. So, when you read authors, you can tell their religious and philosophical ideas. When it comes to dystopian books, for example... In, like, 1984, you can tell that George Orwell didn't believe in God when you read 1984. And it's actually one of the biggest themes of 1984 is this, this lack of faith that, the, that the, whole, the whole country, the whole culture, everyone has. There is no belief in God anymore. That's what makes 1984 so horrifying. On the flip side of that, when you read Fahrenheit 451, you can tell that Ray Bradbury did believe in God, because the very end of Fahrenheit 451 gives you the idea that uh, that God is going to help in the rebuilding of the world. So, your, your, your philosophy, especially when it comes to God or no God, is important to how you think and what you think. Not just on the subject of religion, but on all kinds of other subjects, because it's, it's your very first starting point. It's where you start. Uh, after all, your philosophy is just a collection of these ideas that help you frame the world that you exist in. It is, it's the glasses through which you view the world. And I do think it is a, it's a little strange that most people don't really get the concept of that. They don't really understand that they're viewing the world. Everyone views the world through uh, philosophical glasses. Uh, now, I, don't, I also don't want to make this all about philosophy because then everybody will get really bored. But we're going to start with a certain famous philosopher. We're going to start with a guy named Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche once made the proclamation that God is dead. Nietzsche was a famous German philosopher in the late 1800s. Uh, a lot of important philosophical thought actually came out of Germany, and this is overshadowed by Hitler and the Holocaust, but the Germans contributed a lot to Western society from the 1500s through the 1800s, and then I guess they contributed Hitler after that. But, uh, but German history kind of gets blotted out by Hitler, and that, that kind of stinks because... The Holocaust isn't the only thing you should learn about in school. Now, God is dead is quite a statement, especially from Nietzsche, who was the son of a Lutheran pastor. And I always thought that was interesting, that Nietzsche's father was a Lutheran pastor, because I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Missouri Synod Lutheran, that is. I'm not an ELCA Lutheran, which is an important distinction in America, but I don't really 
I don't want to get into all that right now. So anyway, Nietzsche didn't really follow in his father's footsteps, obviously. Uh, even though in school he, he excelled at theology, and in the beginning he even planned on becoming a minister when he started school. But instead, he became a, a critic of Christian religion. And maybe, maybe the most famous one ever, because of this very out-of-context quote, God is dead. But this very famous quote is almost exclusively taken out of context. Especially by, you know, those edgy, neck-bearded internet atheists. They view it as some sort of victorious proclamation of success. Yay, humanity is finally doing away with God. Hooray. And that isn't exactly what Nietzsche was saying. The whole context is more like, God is dead, and we, society, have killed him, and there isn't enough water in all the oceans to wash the blood off our hands. That's, the, that's a more full version of that quote. Nietzsche's famous quote isn't a happy, gleeful hooray. It is a heavy, serious recognition that something will have to replace the gigantic hole left in society now that we have, you know, removed God from it. There is a God-sized hole that will have to be filled in our Western societies. His quote was a recognition of the fact that the Bible and Christianity were the foundational cornerstones of Western society. Because Nietzsche, and almost everyone else in his time period, um, even if they weren't Christians, they understood that the Christian religion provided a framework for meaning, value, morality for basically all of the Western world, and it did that for more than a thousand years. And he understood that if that stopped being the case, it was probable that society would need to face it. Now, Nietzsche didn't view that as a necessarily bad thing. He actually said that nihilism, which is a belief that there's no intrinsic value or intrinsic truth, uh, he thought it was a quote-unquote great crisis. He viewed it as inevitable that humanity must replace God with nihilism and with a sort of social Darwinism where the strongest of will would succeed, which is a horrifying thought and the stuff of all of Orwell's greatest nightmares. This is basically, the world of 1984 is the world that Nietzsche envisioned. Uh, now, unlike most people in his day, Nietzsche understood the fact that the Bible and Christian religion were foundational to Western civilization. Um, I mean, like most people in his day, but that's unlike people today. People today do not understand that as a fact. Uh, actually, they, they deny that that's a fact, even though it, it very obviously is. Now, even this very critical, faithless, anti-religious guy, Frederick Nietzsche, he understood how important it was to the fabric of society. It wasn't even something to be argued, it was just a fact. And then what happened to Nietzsche after that? Well, then Nietzsche did way too much opium. Uh, he got himself some syphilis, allegedly, from partying too hard. Uh, and then he went absolutely bonkers insane. 
Uh, he fought some police officers on Main Street one day. He hugged a horse, and then he collapsed. And then they threw him in a crazy house, I think, for a while. Uh, he claimed in later writings that he had in some way become God. Uh, he said that he'd been crucified. He called for the German emperor to be shot. He called for the Pope to be thrown into prison. Uh, then he suffered a string of strokes, became paralyzed, got pneumonia, had another stroke, and killed over dead, which is, you know, rough. Uh, almost like a, like a sort of judgment on him somehow. I don't, I don't know. It rains on the just and the unjust, they say. So maybe it's just a coincidence, but I don't know. Pretty rough end to old Nietzsche. And what everybody remembers is, oh, the only thing they remember of Nietzsche is, oh, that's the guy that said God is dead. Nito. I'm going to put that quote on the Twitters to dunk on the dumb Christians. That's what people get out of Nietzsche. But Nietzsche was definitely right about something. Europe largely killed, quote-unquote, God in their societies in the 1800s and 1900s, in large part. Europe is very unlike America, or is very unlike the America of, you know, 20, 30 years ago in this way. Europe is largely atheist, whereas America, up until the last couple decades, largely wasn't. Um, now, what happened in Europe after they lost their faith? Uh, they lost their faith, and at least in a, in a political state and governance level. So there's still faith in Europe, but they, they removed God, they killed God in the, the state sense, the political sense, the governance sense. And Nietzsche was also right that there wouldn't be enough water to wash all the blood off. Uh, his body hadn't even started to really decompose yet when along came World War I and the horrors of World War I. And then right on the heels of World War I was World War II. And everybody knows what happened in World War II. Millions and millions of death, uh, deaths that followed in World War II, not only from the wars themselves, but it was the wars and also from, from fascism and from communism, which took over Europe and Russia, Eastern Europe. It, it took it all by storm. So, it is hard to argue with the fact that he was indeed right, but he was right in a different way than the quote is taken. He was right about the part that everyone likes to leave out. The part about, hey, there's going to be this God-sized hole in humanity, and we'll have to fill it with something. And it turns out that non-religious, secular societies fill this God-sized hole exclusively with tyrannical authoritarian governments. What happens when God is taken away? Something comes in to fill that vacuum, and it is always filled by a tyrannical authoritarian government that new, a new political idea, a new political ideology, doesn't just get rid of religion, it becomes the new religion. And that's what happens. That's what happened in Russia with the Bolsheviks. That's what happened in China. That's what happened in, you know, Eastern Germany. That's what happened in a lot of the, the Soviet satellite states. God was just replaced with the state. And that's, you, you can't argue that on a historical uh, basis. It just, you cannot argue that that is what happened. The religious worship of all of these dictators around the world under communism is undeniable. So, 
history tells us that the God-sized hole will be filled with tyranny. Um, now, what Nietzsche didn't really see, I don't think, was that this killing of God was actually a killing of the truth. Because what is God, really? What is God, how, how, we, how do we view God? Is he an old bearded dude in the sky? Well, not really. In a very real sense, in a philosophical sense, according to what God claims himself in the Bible, God is truth. Uh, the way, the truth, and the life. I am, capital I, capital am, which is Yahweh, which is the Jewish name for God, uh, which can help you understand what is said here. I am Yahweh, the truth. God is truth in this sense. And you'll see this in really good literature. About any time God is used in literature, God is used as a symbolic for ultimate truth or eternal truth. So either in a religious sense or a literary sense or a philosophical sense, any of these, when we talk about God, he is always tied up with and inseparable from truth. So the saying could just as easily be truth as God. So we could say uh, truth is dead and we have killed it. And boy, howdy. Does that ring true about European Western societies in the late 1800s and even more in the 1900s? And today now in the 2000s. And I don't just mean this from a my opinion perspective. I mean this from a, a philosophical perspective. All of our driving, leading philosophical thought in the 2000s is dominated by postmodernism. And postmodernism is quite literally a philosophy that says... Truth isn't inherent or natural. We humans create our own truth with language, which is batshit insane. But a lot of mainstream, mainstream academics buy into this whole idea. They buy into it wholeheartedly. And this belief in the malleability of the truth caused all kinds of horrors since World War II. Most of them political horrors, more on that here in a second. Uh, I'm going to circle back to that, but I want to build further on something else first. So, that is the idea of God and the truth in Western civilization. And I say all of that, that is all a preamble for me to say this. Uh, when people talk about the separation of church and state, they are kind of Nietzsche-fying it to mean of God and of God is dead and he has no place in the governance of the state. And that's not the, the original intent of separation of church and state. The original intent was a separation of a certain church and the governance of the state. For example, most European countries had a state church, such as the Catholic Church or the Anglican Church. In America, when Thomas Jefferson and others were talking about this separation. Uh, it was a separation of a particular church and the state. It was to provide freedom and equality for all of these different Christian Protestant churches in America. Because there was a whole slew of different Protestant faiths in America. They didn't want a single church to wield political power and influence over the others. I mean, we can't let the Puritans be in charge of the government, 
obviously, because they'll start burning all their political enemies and calling them witches. And that's no good. We can't do that. But what it wasn't, it wasn't meant to separate the state from any sort of religious ideas, and especially not from moral ideas that were tied to those religious ideas. The founders, just like Nietzsche, understood that the Bible and Christian morality were inseparable from the culture and therefore inseparable from politics. Because as the late, great Andrew Breitbart said, politics is downstream of culture. Now, arguably, this can go the other way too, and politics can definitely shape culture. But when you are building something in the very beginning, uh, when you're building a people or a civilization, you have to start with religion. Once you've got religion, that informs and shapes your culture. And then both of those things take shape in the governance of those people. This has been true for all of human history. First you get religion, and then the religion influences the culture, and then the religion and the culture influence the governance of the people. So, any group that has ever, ever banded together into a tribe has formed a shared religious idea as they grow and change their culture as, as the people grow. And if the people get past this sort of tribal stage and into some real organization and structure, that is where the religion and other portions of their culture create a sort of civilization. Then the natural course of everything else in existence, these civilizations grow, they flourish, they sustain themselves, they burn themselves up, they get wiped out. No civilization lasts forever, because nothing humans create does. The closest we can get is setting something down in stone, but even that will erode and collapse, you know, over time. And this is a big theme in Book 3, by the way. This is why I think the question of, or, of whether or not American culture and society will collapse is not a question of if, it is a question of when. If we last into eternity as a culture, we will be the first ones to ever do it. And we shouldn't be vain enough to think that that's going to be the case. Political factions, upheaval, war, separation, collapse, conquest, these are all natural courses in societies, and history has shown us that. And it would be foolish for us to think that we're America and we're different, we are eternal. That's, the, that's just stupid. That's not going to happen. But now I've gotten a little off topic. I was at the separation of church and state. Now, the separation of church and state in a modern interpretation has been construed to mean a separation of God and the state. Whether or not that's the idea that early Americans like Thomas Jefferson had, that doesn't really matter anymore because at this point, the majority of Americans in 2022 would agree with the notion that God should be kept out of government. In fact, I don't know if anybody remembers this, but at the Democrat convention in 2012, 10 whole years ago now, there was a vote held on whether or not God should be included in the language of the platform of the DNC. And the DNC held a voice vote of ayes or nays. 
and the vote had to be held three times. There were eyes and nays on both sides, but people watching it live, because I was watching the DNC live that year, everyone noticed that the no side was way louder than the I, than the yes side. And there was this guy, I don't know who it was, but whoever was in charge of holding the vote was visibly distressed. And he kept holding the vote over and over again to this, uh, to this chorus of boos. And he finally just called the eyes the, the winner. He said, oh, the yeses have it, even though everybody listening knew that they didn't. And there was this outcry of a chorus of booing and screaming. And any biblical scholar out there is probably kind of putting their tongue in their cheek at the irony of denouncing God three times on live television openly to the entire world. But uh, everybody saw it. Uh, well, not all. Really, only nerds like me watch the Democrat and Republican conventions every four years. But people who were watching saw it. And it's become clear in the decade following 2012 that the majority of Americans want a separation of not just church and state, but of God and the state. But there is, there's a big pushback against this by the conservative movement in America and American Christians. But uh, there's a reason for that. It's not just trivial, like, foot stomping. It's not just a, a temper tantrum that American Christians and American conservatives are having. It, it has to do with all this stuff I'm talking about. On the flip side, separating God from not only the state, but the culture itself. This is an idea that fills people on the left with glee. It is part of their platform. It's what they want. And then, naively, in my opinion, most modern liberals, most Republicans, and most libertarians will turn to the conservatives and they'll say, why do you care? Why does it matter if we remove God from the state? And what seems to be lost on most Americans is that it's not just the religious idea that conservatives have a problem with. A lot of conservatives do a bad job of articulating this, but they understand it on a very fundamental level. They just can't articulate it. And I'll, I'll, I will articulate it for them and for you to understand. The real problem is this. It is the philosophical idea of removing God from anything to do with government and culture. So, if you're one of those people who just doesn't get why this would upset political conservatives, maybe this podcast will help you understand where we're coming from. Perhaps then, while, while you're still probably going to argue, or you're not going to agree... You'll at, least, you'll at least be able to understand like, where we're coming from and have your curiosity satisfied. When the Founding Fathers put together the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, there was an agreed-upon philosophy and a worldview at the heart of it. This heart of the Constitution and the Declaration was a belief in natural rights. And this is a classical liberalism idea. Not, not new modern liberalism. This is a classic liberal idea from John Locke. And this philosophy, it states that natural rights uh, are life, liberty, and property, as John Locke put it. Now, the framers of the Constitution 
the people who wrote the Declaration, they paraphrased Locke almost exactly, except they changed property to the pursuit of happiness. Now, that wasn't because they didn't think property wasn't a natural right, but it was because they were worried it would be construed by slave owners to claim a constitutional and legal right to slaves. See? All those old white racists were already looking ahead and could see the slavery problem on the horizon when they wrote the Declaration of Independence. Anyways, these natural rights are endowed to mankind by God, based upon this philosophical belief. These rights, these natural rights, are birthrights. They are, they are not rights that are gifted to the people uh, by whoever happens to be in authority, the government doesn't grant these rights. Instead, these are inalienable rights. They cannot be separated from, you, you can't have them taken away, and you can't give them up. Uh, if, you, if they are removed, if they are taken away, it's a form of immoral tyranny to take them away. And this is the bedrock philosophy of the founding of America. This is the foundation upon which the entire government is built. That's the belief. That is the philosophy. And it had to be agreed upon for the government to work properly. After all, the preservation of natural rights is really the only job of the federal government according to the Declaration of Independence and the founding of America. Boy, did we go off the track there, didn't we, since then. So, why can't we have these natural rights without God? That's the next natural question for the skeptic person to ask. Shouldn't we be able to do that? Shouldn't we be able to have natural rights without God having to exist, without us having to acknowledge God? Uh, people will say, I don't, I don't believe in God, so I can't believe in this philosophy the way you present it. I still like the ideas, but I don't like God. Well, logically, this does not work. If there is no God or no creator, then there is no natural law or natural rights. Human nature, if not ruled by God, is not something that is occurring naturally, quote-unquote, in that sense. It is instead something that humans have constructed themselves through you know, evolution, innovation, progress, what have you. There is no higher power, and humanity is the highest power in itself. So there cannot be natural rights endowed by anyone except for whoever is in charge. The ruling class is the only one who would be left to endow these rights. So, again, if this is the case, and the rights are not natural, then they cannot be bestowed upon mankind. There is no one to bestow them. Uh, that means that there are no natural rights at all. Instead, there are only agreed upon. There is only an agreed upon human concept of what these rights are. And to take it further, if that is the case, then these rights, quote unquote, can be taken away at any time that the majority in power decides to take them away. Anytime the majority decides to agree upon a different human concept of what rights are, then they can change. 
which is definitely what you see in the, the modern leftist political movement. Free college and free internet should be quote-unquote rights. Free medical care should be a right, quote-unquote. But uh, property can't be, after all. In the perfect communist utopia, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. And of course, you don't have a right to arms and self-defense because then you're a threat to the ruling class, whoever's in charge. They are, they are changed from a negative right concept, where the only thing required is to be left alone, to a positive right concept, where what is required is someone else's money or labor to provide it. And if you can't understand that something cannot be free if it must be paid for or worked for or provided by someone else by the force of law of the government, well, I don't know what I can do for you if you don't understand that very simple concept. That means you can't... If you can't understand that, that means you cannot understand logic and critical thought. So, in short, if there is no God or Creator, then there is no real, universally true human nature. It becomes a human construct instead. And if it is a human construct, it can be changed or altered to fit into an ever-changing popular opinion, whatever the majority of humans decide. What's more, if there's no universally true human nature, you can't have universal truth either. The truth itself becomes malleable and able to be changed if it is a human construct. And if it can be changed, chances are it will be changed. But, of course, everyone instinctively knows that the truth can't be changed. 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4 because we all got together and decided that it did. It's true in and of itself. And this is what Orwell tries to explain in 1984. And by the same token, we know from history that human nature is constant, and it is true, and it can't really be altered no matter how much social engineering we try to do. It's as true as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And this has been proven by mountains of human corpses in both China and the Soviet Union, where they thought they could forcibly change human nature through government control and communism. Guess what? It didn't work, it doesn't work, and we have roughly a hundred million graves to prove it. So, natural rights granted by a higher authority than humanity. This is the view of traditional constitutionalists. The, the non-existence of God equals the non-existence of human nature and of natural rights. You cannot have one without the other. A separation of God and the state, for Americans, means a fundamental, foundational change of the philosophy that built the system in the first place. So, if we do intend to separate God and the state, a new system will need to be built. You cannot adapt the old system any more than you can reanimate the corpse of a man that has just had his head chopped off. His head's chopped off. That's the bit that runs the whole system. And for many, myself included, removing God from the philosophy of American government 
is no less laughable than decapitating a man and then asking his corpse to sing you a song. That, boys and girls, that is why conservatives have a problem with this modern notion of separating God from government and God from culture. He was baked into the cake all the way back there in 1776 or before. If you don't want that cake, you're going to have to throw it away and bake a new cake, which is exactly what the leftist political movement is seeking to do. Destroy the existing system in order to replace it with a new system. Leftists want a new cake, and no amount of cooperation or compromise is going to get them to let you keep your old cake. They don't want that cake. They don't want what you want. You are not on the same side. And most of the time, the left understands this, and the left understands it in a way that the right doesn't. The right does not understand this. This is why the right really, really likes to compromise, and the left refuses to accept anything except absolute surrender. All right. So some of this is a restatement, but I want to move beyond just the idea of this in America or how it applies to America and separation of church and state. In a much broader sense, this goes way beyond politics. Many people have a deep-seated understanding that the removal of God or morality-based religion, in a wider sense, is not an achievable goal. It really can't be done, and most serious people know that it can't be done. And the argument here is more of a, a psychological, sociological one. And the argument is this. Every human has a need to worship something. If it is not God, then it becomes something else. And lower hierarchical goals below God have historically proven to be bad replacements for God. Now we're circling back around to Nietzsche and this idea of the God-sized hole in society. If the highest goal is the greater good or the common good to the exclusion of a higher moral power than humanity, you'll end up with a society that is tyrannical and all the terrible things that come along with tyranny, like genocide, mass starvation, repression of individual rights, all of, get, all of that good stuff. That is where you get tyranny. If, if, you're, if you're pursuing the greater good or the common good as your highest thing to replace God, if that's the thing that you're worshiping. Now, if the highest goal on the opposite side of that spectrum, if the highest goal is individual freedom to the exclusion of a higher moral power, you get a form of self-worship, and in society you'll end up with savagery, anarchy, and once again, all the terrible things that come along with that. And this should be a little bit familiar if you caught the Tyrants and Savages episode. That's what we were talking about in Tyrants and Savages. And it isn't only religious people who think this. This is the opinion of many non-religious thinkers, and philosophers over the course of human history. Nietzsche we already talked about, um, but people like Immanuel Kant. Immanuel Kant did not believe in God, uh, but he understood that a moral-based religion was imperative for human society. 
Kant was another German, I think, or maybe he was, maybe he was Swiss. Um, and then you have like uh, Thomas Paine in America. Thomas Paine is very popular for writing common sense, and a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people who are into the Founding Fathers will know who Thomas Paine was, but a lot of them won't know that Thomas Paine was called a filthy little atheist by a lot of people, um, and nobody really went to his funeral, and his, I think his grave was even desecrated, but he was viewed as an atheist, and a lot of people didn't like him. But he was one of the loudest voices in favor of natural rights bestowed by a creator, because he also understood that you need morality uh, in your baked into your society. And then we get to someone else, Karl Marx. Karl Marx, the father of communism. He called religion the opium of the masses. Karl Marx despised religion, and he called for it to be removed from society. And then Karl Marx laughably went on to create a political doctrine that required an undeniably religious worship of itself. If Marx was right about religion being opium, then communism turned out to be meth, heroin, and bath salts all at the same time with Stalin and the Soviet Union and Mao and the Great Leap Forward in China. Even many people who herald science as some sort of modern replacement for God and religion, they require the worship of some scientific theories over other less popular theories with their, you know, their scientific significance in the studies. And if you don't believe me, as a scientist, say something even remotely critical or questioning about ape to human evolution or about man-made climate change and watch how fast your career is destroyed and you're called a heretic, even if you're just posing a benign question about it, you know, which is actually just engaging in the actual scientific method and asking questions. For the past two years, since COVID started, if a scientist said anything that questioned COVID guidelines from Fauci, they were kicked off of all social media and their careers were, they set out to destroy their careers. And here we are two years later and Fauci and the CDC are admitting a lot of those things those people were saying openly two years ago. But there's no apology. There is no, we were wrong. We're sorry we tried to ruin your life. There is only this crazy Orwellian situation where people are actively engaged in doublethink and black-white from 1984. And that means you're... Now I have to explain those two things. So I mean by Orwellian doublethink, it means that you, you're holding two contradictory ideas at the same time and you're believing both of them to be true at the same time. And people are actively doing this when every single day the CDC or Fauci flips on something that a few, a couple, you know, six months, a year, two years ago, people were being banned from Facebook or banned from Twitter or thrown off the internet or their careers were being destroyed or every news station was saying how they were a crazy kook. Oh, if you say that the, the virus came out of a lab in China, that is terrible misinformation and dangerous and you're a kook and you're an idiot 
And here we are two years later, and they're just very quietly like, yeah, yeah, it came out of a lab in China. Or if you even a year ago were to say, like, cloth masks don't really do anything, you're a heretic and you're run off of social media. And now here we are in 2022, and all the, all the, CDC and all the media outlets are saying, yeah, you know, cloth masks don't really do anything. But that is a, if you have been falling for that for the last two years and kind of going along with whatever Fauci says, and then when he flips, you just keep going along with it. That means you're following a religion. You're not following science. You are following a religion. And Fauci is your Pope. For goodness sake, Fauci actually said, I am the science. You know, like the bad guy from Star Wars and the Senate or whatever. I don't know. I didn't watch it. Uh, Fauci has been followed more religiously by the political left since 2020 than the Pope himself has been followed by members of the Catholic faith. Again, that is not science. That is religion. You are, you are involving yourself in a religious group at that point. Now, the point being here is that humans have a plain and undeniable need for this worship of something, at the very least on a societal, if not on an individual scale, at the very least on a societal scale. And you might not really understand this, but it is the debate at the root of modern Western civilization right now. It's the reason why dystopian fiction is so popular. It's the reason most young people expect things to get worse as they grow up rather than improve. There is almost this, this subconscious knowledge that something has gone very wrong with Western cultures and civilizations in America Europe, Australia, and, and anywhere else that falls under this umbrella of Western civilization. People can feel that something is wrong, and they just can't quite put their finger on what it is. The people I'm talking about that are debating these things in academic, you know, theological, historical, uh, psychological fields, they're pointing frantically at this removal of God and religion and morals from society as the cause of this uneasy feeling. They're saying that, that feeling that you have, that everything is wrong, the, the reason why it seems like Western civilization is starting to kind of atomize right in front of you is because, we have, is because of exactly what Nietzsche said. God is dead and we have killed him and we have to replace that gigantic hole we've left. But what we've been doing is the left is actively trying to replace it with, you know, government, with an authoritarian government and with the religion of the common good. And while the left's trying to do that, almost everyone else is not really trying to replace it with anything. They're just kind of floating around, uh, engaged, especially younger generations. I've been teaching high school for five years, and I can tell you right now that like a, a healthy percentage of all those kids are all little nihilist, and they don't they don't know it. They don't have a word for it. They don't understand that nihilism is their you know their philosophy, 
But that's what it is. They don't think there's a point to anything. They don't think that anything matters. They don't think that anything's going to get better. They have no responsibility. They have no purpose. They have no desires. They have, they have no ambition. They have none of that. And they're all, it's an, it's an entire generation of nihilist that is coming up with, with Gen Z, um, which, is, which is why I am almost certainly going to homeschool my kid instead of putting them in the public school system, but uh, I don't know. That's a that's a whole different podcast for a whole different day. But anyway, people are pointing this and saying, this is the problem. The, the removal of God, you guys separated God from your culture, and you're wondering why the culture is going wonky. Well, it's because God was a, a vital, inseparable piece of that culture. And people just can't, can't figure that out. They just don't see it. Uh, and people should really start paying attention because th- there is a literal mountain of human corpses which have been created by cultures and societies which made an active effort to remove God and religious morality completely from their societies. I said this before, but I'll say it again. The Soviet Union, China, North Korea, Cambodia, Vietnam, basically half the countries in Africa, um, a whole bunch of countries in South America. There's a historical precedent to this already, and it has never had a positive impact on a society in the history of mankind. The only real argument that gets made against this goes something like, well, yeah, but religious people and religious countries have done a lot of terrible things too. To which, of course, the response is, yes, human nature is inherently prone to corruption and evil acts, and historically, when you remove religious morality from humans, they get even worse than they already are. Humans are still bad, even with some sort of moral religious framework, but if you remove that, they're not going to get better, they're going to get worse. Um, To which... The counter-argument to that, hysterically, is, well, human nature doesn't exist. We create what, what we are. Human nature is something that isn't inherent, and we can decide what we want to be. Which, and I cannot stress the irony here enough, this is the exact sin for which Judeo-Christian tradition holds that mankind fell from grace in the Garden of Eden in the first place. This is precisely why human nature is the way it is, is this proclamation of, I can create what I am. I can become like God. That's what the snake told Eve in the garden. If you eat from this tree, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And Eve said, good, then I won't need God anymore. And guess what? Turns out that's what caused the entire fall of humanity. So, if you made it through all of that, all that logic, if, if you understood what I'm saying, uh, and don't think I'm just full of shit, if you understood the gravity of all this, and the concept of God, not only in a religious sense, but in a sense of inherent truth, well then, good for you, congratulations, you made it through, where am I at? Uh, almost an hour, 55 minutes, nice. Uh, as always though, you know, I always like to leave you on a on a cheery note. Uh, what's the good news? Because all of this is really bad news. 
if, if you, what is the good news? Well, if you're religious, the good news is that it doesn't really matter if every single human civilization eventually collapses. It doesn't really matter that the world is a dark, scary, sad place where war and strife and separation are inevitable. None of that really matters because this, you know, this isn't the only thing. This isn't it. There's something else that you are looking forward to if you're religious. Now, if you're not religious, is there good news for you? Well, of course there is. The good news there is that you are still living in the freest, safest, most comfortable time in all of human history, at least for now. And it's certainly likely that you will live and die just as fat and happy as you always have been. Maybe. Um, now, there's an argument to be made that if you pursue you know, moral virtue, your life will get better because after all the you know the ten commandments aren't there as you know rules to beat you over the head with they're there as a guide to hey if you want to have a successful life and be prosperous and you know have people like you and you know have a good wife have a happy enjoyable life these are some guidelines you can follow to achieve that that's what the ten commandments really are um, but even, even beyond that, like if you're a non-religious person and you, it's unlikely you're going to be running into anything bad anytime soon. And maybe even your kids will too. There's no way to know where and when all of the war and the strife and all the other bad stuff in the world is going to happen. If it's going to be here somewhere else, if it's going to be now or sometime later. And you're probably living in the Western world you're going to be able to probably dodge it and avoid it for most of your life and probably most of your children's life. So, be happy. You know, take a walk in the woods or in the mountains. Breathe the free air. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your friends. Be aware of the dark inevitability of bad things happening to you or your country or your whole society being aware of all that doesn't mean you have to be mopey and depressed about everything. If anything, it should make you thankful for all those great things that make up the, the other half of human, human existence, all those good things. So, I managed to end it on a pretty light, happy note this time. Uh, I guess I'll cut this off at about an hour. Um, peace out, everybody. Thanks for your time. I will talk to you next time on the Capo Podcast.